today on the Lowdown and that's a new podcast. Dr. No Amy Ben Anzi gives us the lowdown on dancing room and autism spectrum disorder. Over to you, Hannah and Ramoyla. Thanks, Jody. Well, hello and welcome to The Lowdown. I'm your co-host, Marla. I'm an SLP here at the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation. And with me here is Hina Mahmood, OT, co-host, and lovely person overall. Hi, Hina. Hi, Marla. How are you? Ooh, I'm doing really well. Thank you. I'm very excited Good. for today. Yeah. Before we continue our episode, we'd love for you to hit the subscribe button and leave a review of our podcast on your chosen podcast platform. Remember to check out our episode pages for any additional resources related to each topic. And you can follow the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation at dsrf.org and on Instagram and Twitter by following at DSRF Canada. Today, we're bringing you an episode about the dual diagnosis of Down syndrome and autism, but this time from more of a medical lens. And our goal here is for families to understand the role of a doctor in dual diagnosis and the kinds of supports that can be offered. That's right. And we have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Noemi Spinazzi today, and we will be discussing the process of getting a dual diagnosis, as well as some challenges that are unique to this group of people. We know that families who have kids with a dual diagnosis often don't feel understood by the medical community. Um, And it is our hope that this episode brings ideas, answers, and perhaps even greater understanding for families and supporters alike. So Noemi Spinazzi is a primary care physician at the UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital in Oakland. She provides primary care services to hundreds of children with complex care needs and developmental disabilities. And she founded a specialized clinic which is really great, serving patients with Down syndrome. She is also the director of the Development and Behavioral Pediatrics Resident Rotation at Children's in Oakland. Um, Welcome to the Lowdown, Dr. Spinazzi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's uh, our pleasure. You are our people. We are so excited. <laughs> yes, we always we always love to have our people come join us so we can chat. Um, and we're very excited for this episode because, as Marla and I, uh, as Marla mentioned, and I reiterated that this is a very tricky topic for a lot of people. So mm-hmm. hopefully, we can shed some light and provide some more answers for our families. Um, so, in the tradition of the lowdown, Noemi, we like to ask our guests five secret questions, and they're just fun little icebreakery questions. Um, so our audience can kind of get to know you as a person first. So, are you game? Should we start with those? I'm ready. All right. Great. Love it. All right. So question number one, what is your favorite family meal to cook? Oh, well, I'm Italian. I'm from Milan, Italy. Um, So I would say that the meal I'm most proud of is my lasagna, uh, which is so stereotypical, but whatever. (laughs) So it's fine. The most fun is probably making sushi. Mm. Oh, and you guys get good oh. fish down there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, homemade sushi is like it's it's an arduous task. So it's a very you, to be committed to making sushi at home. That's pretty great. I love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, question number two: Where is your favorite destination for a weekend away? Just to unwind. Where would you like to go? Um, I would like to go and take a two day nap. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, we do have, I live in Oakland and it's real close to uh, Monterey, California. And mm. I love going to Monterey. It has such beautiful beaches and parks and um, I like to hike. And now that I have a, an almost 10 month old baby, uh, I like to put her in the carrier and she likes to bat at leaves and flowers and trees. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's the best. Yeah. Yeah. Monterey is beautiful. I think the TV show Little Big Lies for anyone who watches is based in Monterey, California. So it looks like a dream to just hang out there. So I totally could understand why you'd want to go. Okay, question number three, do you have a de stress routine after your workday is complete? Um, I come home and uh, I hug my little Clara Marina and I play with her and then she's in this really clingy phase of her life (laughs) so part of the de-stressing is to love on her and then put her down um then call my mom because I'm Italian and I have to call my mom every day (laughs) um and then cook I think that cooking is my de-stressing and it allows me to be creative uh, in a very different way from Mm -hmm my job from work day yeah yeah Yeah. um what are you currently reading i am reading a uh a book in italian it's called equilibri and it won the uh literature prize literature prize last year um and uh, it's a mystery and i just started it and i have to be honest i started it a couple of weeks ago and i am a little stuck on it because instagram caught my attention a little more in the past few days than than the book that's okay yeah hummingbird mystery i'm intrigued it sounds good yeah i wonder if it's translated i'm gonna check it out um Okay, last question. What do you like to listen to either while you're commuting or if you go on a road trip? I'm a big fan of Anderson Pack since uh, before he got famous with Bruno. Uh, um, yeah. and, and so I really like uh, Anderson Pack and uh, I like good hip hop, uh, Kendrick yes. Lamar. Uh, yes. so I'm the, the, Speaking those my language. Are, and then, of course, Beyonce. Yeah, she she shepherded or or a pumped up. She shepherded me through the process of giving birth. Um, my my husband knew to put her on for the duration of labor. That's how how much of a fan I am of the queen. Excellent, very cool. (laughs) Thank you so much for indulging us in that. I was just thinking about Anderson Pack's Tiny Desk concert, which was also excellent. Um. For anybody listening, check that out because it's really great. Um, let's get into our topic here a little bit, and we'll start fairly generally. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your role in your clinic and kind of how that all works and what you're doing? Yeah. So um, our Down syndrome clinic at UCSF is uh, special in that uh, it is run by myself, a primary care doctor, Uh, many Down syndrome clinics around the country here in the United States are either run by developmental physicians uh, or by geneticists. And so we are fairly unique in that we have a very uh, primary 
primary care lens uh, to what we do. Um, I work within a federally qualified health center. The majority of my patients are uh, receive Medi-Cal as their type of insurance, which in the United States means that um, they're financially dealing with uh, often lack of some resources. And uh, uh, my patients speak many different languages and uh, come from many different cultural backgrounds. Um, so we have that culturally humble approach to what we do and a very holistic approach to what we do. I am the medical director of the clinic and the doctor in the clinic. And then uh, we're a multidisciplinary team. Uh, my partners in crime are Mary Beth Finch, who is a, a physical therapist by training, um, but an infant development specialist uh, by practice. And uh, we have Rebecca Rice, who is our social worker, and she has a mental health background that she brings uh, to the work. And then we have Annika Miller, who is a wonderful young woman with Down syndrome, who is our uh, family liaison and clerical support. And we have care coordination support by uh, Miriam Castillo, um, who is our office assistant. Uh, and what we do in our clinic visits is we... we give patients an hour of our time, uh, which is never enough. It feels like so much compared to how quick other medical visits can be. And really it never feels like we have time to spare. What we try to do is we is a very uh, detailed overview of medical conditions that may be impacting uh, our patients with Down syndrome, A to Z. We hit every category of health, um, including conditions that someone may be at risk of because of their diagnosis of Down syndrome that has not been explored, regardless of whether the patient may be symptomatic in that area. And then we move to a review of development. And uh, uh, for the younger kids, that may be, you know, a more structured overview of milestones for an older kid. It might be, of course, a review of where they are developmentally and functionally, as well as a look at their IEP and, and what services they are receiving. Um, we check on how they're doing socially in, in terms of mm -hmm. uh, their financial well-being, in terms of their uh, social connectedness. We make sure that families are connected with uh benefits and, and resources in their communities. And we try to serve as a bit of octopi who connect mm -hmm. uh, patients with um, community um, because strength in numbers, that's of course uh, the warriors um, uh, slogan, uh, but it's also our motto in Down syndrome clinic. Um, and, uh, and then we try to bring it all together. And we're I make it sound like we're totally structured in this, but really we always start with the parent's priority and often the parent's priority is more around development than health, although it varies. Um, and we try to do this as organically as possible and, and kind of bring it together for our families so that when they walk out of the clinic, they have some recommendations on uh, what health conditions may be worth uh, exploring or uh, adjusting management of, or maybe just a thumbs up that health-wise things are going pretty and then developmentally, we screen for autism at every visit, um, and as well as other developmental conditions that co-occur in people with Down syndrome, uh, ADHD, for example, and mental health conditions. Some kids are real anxious. Some kids are suffering from depression. Um, some kids are undergoing a developmental regression that needs to be appropriately evaluated. 
and then we advocate. Uh, we um, are notorious for showing up at IEPs and writing letters. And, <laughs> you sound uh, so much like us. It's this is. Like, I was yeah. just gonna say. Oh <laughs> but the truth is, the truth is that um, health needs to be defined much more broadly than how we think about it, because if school is not uh, serving all of a child's need, for example, then the kid is going to uh, feel the consequences of that in their home life as well. Yeah. If a kid has unrecognized hearing loss or well-recognized hearing loss that the school isn't necessarily accommodating or addressing, then that important medical condition isn't uh, being yeah. honored in its impact uh, in the school setting. So that's really what we try to do is we try to bring it all together. Um, there are some uh, disability benefits that are available uh, to families um, that are the best kept secrets. <laughs> in our, yeah. And so uh, part of what we do also is, is document very clearly what the child's needs are um, and refer for these types of benefits so that um, a family uh, can receive those types of supports that can then allow them uh, to pursue some other developmental supports mm -hmm. to be more clear. If I tell you that you may need some behavioral support in the home, but truly it is not feasibly uh, implementable because the parent needs to go to work after work so that they can pay rent, then it's going to be real hard to uh, put in place a behavioral support in the home. However, if we are able to recognize the child's behavioral need and connect them with that disability benefit that allows for additional income, then the parent can be present at home to then work with a behavior specialist and implement that support. So, mm -hmm. um, I can be the smartest doctor in the room and make the smartest recommendations, but if I don't make sure that it's actually implementable in someone's mm -hmm. real life, then I'm not really making the difference that I want to make. So mm -hmm. that's what we do. I got chills like four times just listening yep. to that. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Oh, yeah. excellent. Um, I think Hannah's going to take it from here in a, in the DSASD direction. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. And, and, and just before we jump to that, I do really appreciate the holistic nature of your clinic, because I think that is where sometimes people falter, where they will focus on one little area and we're going to support families in this area. But I love that you said that we need to make sure things are being followed through with. So you can make a recommendation for something and it, and then it might just be forgotten on, you may just fall through the net. And that is, I think, where problems happen. And it's so hard for our families to keep track of everything. You know, there's so many things that they have to check in with their kids. So it's so great that they have you and your amazing team as a resource to make sure that all areas are kind of looked after. And I think that's mm -hmm. what true holistic family-centered care should be about. So kudos to you and your and your powerful team um, at your clinic. That's pretty great. Yeah. Um, I want to I wanna say one thing about what you just said, yeah. though, and that is yeah. that... Um, Truly, it is uh, 
quite time intensive uh, mm -hmm. to provide this type of service. And not everybody has access to a Down syndrome clinic or a multidisciplinary yeah. team. And one thing that I think everybody should know is that most insurances actually have access to case management services, another best kept secret. And so it is part of what we do when we want to make sure that something is followed through is formally refer to the case management mm. services that exist within our mm. systems so that we can team up with other resources that can accompany yeah. the family through whatever journey we're recommending mm -hmm. for them. That is so smart. And I'm, I think a lot of parents feel like a case manager, which mm -hmm. doesn't really leave a lot of time for being a parent, especially mm -hmm. for some of our more medically complex students and kids that we see um, and adults too. Um, so yes. this is, this is good info. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, okay, so yeah, let's kind of shift our focus a little bit towards um, the co-occurrence of autism in our individuals with Down syndrome. Can you talk about how ASD presents in people with Down syndrome? It is certainly a complex area given the wide range and presentation in both conditions. I would love for nothing more than to talk about how someone with Down syndrome and autism may present. So first off, People with Down syndrome can have some traits, symptoms, signs that are also seen in people with autism. And I'll talk about that as I'm giving you a thorough answer to that question. So I wanna underline that if your child has one or two of these signs, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have autism. Example, if your kid likes to twirl a string or beads and they otherwise don't have any other sign of autism, it's unlikely that your kid with Down syndrome has autism. Just like in the neurotypical population, when we screen for autism, we're looking for multiple signs of the presence of the autism spectrum. We're, do, we're using that same lens when we think about Down syndrome. Uh, so there are several signs and symptoms of autism in people with Down syndrome. And spoiler alert, they're the same signs and symptoms of autism that we see in the general population. So let's review what those might be. One of them is what's called stereotypies. These are repetitive behaviors or perseverative behaviors. Examples of these might be uh, flapping, rocking, twirling, uh, staring at ceiling fans, staring at lights, playing with the same thing in the same way over and over and over, um, listening to the same little segment of that one YouTube video over and over and over. Um, again, stimming that those repetitive behaviors um, uh, serve a purpose, uh, and typically that purpose is calming, organizing. Uh, it can help some kids focus their attention. So in itself, it's not a bad thing for a kid to have these repetitive behaviors, and it, they are actually pretty common in people with Down syndrome in general, especially when we've had a long day, we're tired, we're overwhelmed, we need a break. And 
In a kid with Down syndrome who does not have autism, it is typically easier to break a kid out of that repetitive yes, behavior, exactly. right? Yeah. They they mm-hmm. may be there twirling and then you're like, oh, look at this, let's play with this doll. Let me give you some attention and social interaction. And typically that social interaction is gonna win over the repetitive behavior as opposed to a kid with Down syndrome who's on the spectrum will typically tend to go back to those repetitive behaviors, then it it will be harder to break them away from that repetitive behavior. That repetitive behavior, uh, one study, uh, Donna Hopkins showed that um, those repetitive behaviors tend to be a little bit more complex. So you cannot see me in the podcast, but I'm rocking. And I'm rocking because that's how I focus. Um, But I'm not uh, tapping my chin just so with my hand, just so um, the... Rocking is a repetitive behavior, but it's a pretty simple, straightforward one or twirling a bead as opposed to something a little bit more stereotyped and more complex that we might see in someone on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, do I have time to keep going? Because this oh, is a long answer. You just go for it. We You go for go it. For You're it. doing amazing. Yeah. I'm so okay. about it. <laughs> and you interrupt me. You interrupt me uh, if there's questions. No, I yeah, just we will. that you said that it's not yeah. a bad thing. We it's not yeah, a bad had thing. this conversation yesterday. The amount of time we talk about danglers and twirlers and strings and things in this office is yeah. a lot of time. Yes. Um, but it's not all bad, right? Mm-mm. It's not. Yeah a problem per se, unless your child can't do other things. Exactly. They're spending so much time in their their routine. Exactly. And I think the thing is like kids with Down syndrome stim, kids with Down syndrome and autism stim and neurotypical people stim. We just are not sometimes aware of it. Like you mentioned with rocking, right? No, I mean, like uh, while you were talking, I was twirling my, my, uh, my ring on my finger, right? So we're all doing it. This is what I try to get parents to understand is that everybody stims. It's just how you manage it. But yes, absolutely keep going. We're loving this. And I'll add one thing to what Marla just said, and that is stimming is not a problem unless it's keeping you from doing other things. And if stimming is so intense that it's keeping someone from doing other things, then that tells me that a child is disorganized, uncomfortable, and needs something else sensory-wise and environment-wise to make them feel more at ease so that they don't feel like using these uh, calming, regulating, uh, stimming mechanisms yeah. constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, uh, I would add that. Um, and I yeah. often sense a lot of anxiety from students who are really in that mode. And sometimes it's even self-injurious and there's a lot of things happening, but to me, that's a stress signal often, you know, if somebody's so wrapped in their routine of tapping their jaw, hitting their face, twirling yeah. their thing, um, there's to me, they're stressed. That looks like stress. There's a function. Yeah. It's like, it's a way of them telling us that something is something that they're needing something, right? Cause it is a function of behavior at this. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes I've seen it also be that something, so some sensory things are distressed and then others are just truly pleasurable. Yeah, and so exactly. it, it could be something that's really, really enjoyable. And then much like when I'm eating sushi and I have a hard time stopping, right? If someone is doing something really enjoyable, they may have a hard time stopping. But then mm-hmm. because of difficulties in regulating their nervous system, they can get so excited that that ex- 
it, it goes the other Elatedness way. Yeah. can can spill yeah. over into yeah. anxiety, and I've seen that too. And parents yeah. often have a good sense of it. I was talking with a parent recently about the happy humming versus mm-hmm. the stress humming, and it's both humming. Mm-hmm. If you didn't know the child, you wouldn't necessarily know. Um, mm-hmm. And it's both stimming, it's making a sound, but there's a clear difference if you know the person well, whether it's I'm in a good place or I'm overwhelmed. So parents mm-hmm. often have a sense of some of those things too. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that I was talking about when I was talking about um, perseverative, perseverative and repetitive play uh, behaviors is play. And that's another thing we see it different in kids with Down syndrome only versus uh, Down syndrome autism. I'll refer to it as DSASD. Um, so kids with DSASD typically have some abnormal patterns of play. With the younger kids, so Many young kids enjoy cause and effect toys, those toys that you press and light up, press and give music. What I see is that as kids uh, grow older, uh, they also start preferring passing a ball back and forth, uh, patting a baby, playing with a car versus a kid with a dual diagnosis that will often stick to preferring some of those exciting cause and effect toys. And um, that is actually one of the questions I make sure to ask at every visit is, what does your like child enjoy doing in terms of play and how do they play? Mm-hmm. And uh, another thing we might see is uh, uh, pretty repetitive play, like lining up toys, which we hear a lot in kids with uh, autism and the general population too, but also just taking out the toys and then putting back in the toys. Yeah. And then taking out the toys and then putting back in the toys. Mm-hmm. And again, we have to put everything in the context of where a child is developmentally, because that may actually be pretty normal for a child earlier on developmentally. Mm-hmm. But as they grow older, you would expect them to take out the toys and then do something with the toys as opposed to just, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the uh, loading and unloading out. part. of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Throwing is another completely uh, normal part of, of development, yeah. right? That moment where you realize that you throw and that you can play fetch with your parent because they bring it back to you. Um, I see throwing uh, kind of sticking around for longer in my kids with a dual diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, really being focused on a part of a toy as opposed to the whole. Um, sometimes I, in our visits, I get stuck typing stuff on the computer and Mary Beth is usually on the floor uh, playing with the kid. Usually there's a pediatric resident also that's observing um, and, and, and joining the visit and they get the lucky job of playing with the kid. And so we have toys and we watch that because part of screening for autism is seeing how the kids interact with the toys um, in real time. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And uh, we have stuffed animals and babies. And uh, what we sometimes see is that a kid may get really focused on like the nose of, of uh, Mickey Mouse or maybe mouth the nose of Mickey Mouse as opposed to like looking at the whole toy and doing something with the Mickey Mouse, like mm-hmm. uh, uh, patting it or uh, rocking totally. it or yeah. uh, hugging it. And a lot of those babies also make good danglers because they have a yeah. right? So playing yeah. with baby... But shaking baby and not playing with baby as a, a little person, a pretend person, is a different it's a different thing. There's some subtlety to it. Exactly, exactly. Um, 
another thing um, that we see uh, that I really would like to highlight um, is uh, communication. And this is another tricky one, right? Because we know that speaking with our mouth is harder for people with Down syndrome. And there are many factors that go into it. There is mouth weakness. There is a tongue that tends to be bigger than the space afforded inside the mouth. There's uh, sometimes other things in the mouth, like the darn feeding tubes that some kids um, need. There's apraxia, motor planning difficulties that can make it difficult to speak. Sometimes there's hearing loss. So we have many reasons for spoken language to be impacted in kids with Down syndrome. And yet, kids with autism also have more significant difficulties with language than those with Down syndrome alone very often. And there's a quality to it that is worth paying attention to. Anybody who's come to see me knows I live on a soapbox about the importance of sign language because total communication is a gift that we can give to children so that they can express themselves and their needs. It's also a gift to Dr. Noemi Spinazzi because then if I see that many kids who come to me who are, you know, two, three, and are exposed to sign may not be saying a whole lot with their mouths, but have a big signing vocabulary, um, or they just use their gestures. If they haven't been exposed to sign, they use gestures. They shrug, they point, they act out what they want. Mm -hmm. What I see in my kids with who have a dual diagnosis is that there's a lot less of that gestural language too. Mm -hmm. So there may be less signing. There is less pointing. They may point to what they really, really want, like food, but may not point to other things that are not as highly desired. One thing I always ask is, if a kid says something really cool, like a plane, a flower, a puppy, will they point to it? Will they call your attention to it? That's called shared attention. And that's something that's often missing in kids with a dual diagnosis. A parent may say, oh, if they see a dog, they run to it. But do they bring you into that experience? Do they make sure you saw that cool puppy too? Do they look back at you and then look at the dog and do that three-point gaze that brings in shared attention? And that's often missing in those kids who have a dual diagnosis. Um, the other piece is understanding. So my kids with Down syndrome who are not speaking very much typically understand a whole lot more than what they can say. And so they answer to their name, they list, they follow directions, maybe they're simple directions. Uh, they uh, can recognize instructions like bring me the ball, where are your shoes, where's your daddy? And and those are that that receptive language, our understanding also is often more impacted in those with a dual diagnosis. I have some kids with DSASD um, who talk and have words. What I notice, what I try to pry about is how are they using those words? Are they using them spontaneously or are they repeating them after you? Because a parent may tell me, oh yeah, they say mama, dada, and milk, and I ask them, oh, do they say them spontaneously? Do they call you mama? Or do they repeat it when you ask them to repeat it? Mm 
Because there's a difference between spontaneous use of language versus repetition or what's called echolalia, which is I repeat the last thing you said, which is another thing we see fairly commonly in kids with autism. Mm -hmm. um, and then the last thing I wanna say is I've seen more labeling with language in kids with autism than requesting. So I might label ball, but when I want the ball, I go, <laughs> And I melt down and even though I can say the word, I don't necessarily use it to request, but I can label it. And that's a, a, a flavor of how someone may be using language that we try to pay attention to in our clinic visits. Mm -hmm. okay. that, that was a really, really awesome description of it. Sometimes I will also see kids with a dual diagnosis whose speech, so the sounds that they can make, be shockingly clear. Um, yes. which is this whole other subgroup. I tend to see roughly two subgroups of the dual diagnosis group. Some of them have an extremely hard time making any sounds at all. And they would be considered, you know, nonverbal. They're not using their voice for much language. Um, and then there's another group whose speech is very, very clear, more clear than you would expect given a diagnosis of just Down syndrome, because for a most of our students with Down syndrome, we spend a lot of time and effort working on getting sounds out and, you know, making them clear over time. And we start very mushy and then we get into clearer speech, but it's, it's a long process. And for some kids with a dual diagnosis, they start with whole words that have all the sounds in them. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, like that it's not yes. the typical progression of speech for a kid with Down syndrome. So you might and, have a child at home who has this really clear speech and you're like, oh, maybe they don't have autism after all. Maybe they do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And and exactly as you said, because clarity is so difficult. Mm -hmm. it, in a kid with Down syndrome who does not have autism, what I've typically seen is a lot of word approximations, words that sound unclear mm -hmm. before we start getting to clarity. And what I see, what I get surprised like you when someone has this crystal clear pronunciation and yet they have few words it. or they're not exactly they're not using the words to request to show to to use them for the social purpose of communication because mm -hmm. that's what autism is right maybe that's what we should have start where we should have started autism is described by impairments in social relatedness and social interactions, including how we use language, especially for the purpose of a social interaction, as well as a restrictive and repetitive pattern of behaviors and interests, mm -hmm. as well as the missing third piece, sensory processing and integration difficulties um, that impact how we experience the world. Mm -hmm. So, Yes, I completely agree with you, Marla. I get my my spidey senses go off when I hear someone pronounce something too clearly, <laughs> very clearly yeah. when other things are not on board. Because I have some kids with Down syndrome who pronounce words very clearly sure. and they're they're by that point, they have a pretty good vocabulary. They're using their vocabulary in context. Mm -hmm. So when when the clear the articulation comes without the other stuff, then mm -hmm. I I agree mm -hmm. with you. Then I wonder mm -hmm. if something else is at play. 
Yeah, that's that's a good description of it too. I think for the kids with a, a singular diagnosis of just Down syndrome, we usually see more of a level profile. All of the skills are kind of going and growing together. I'm making lots of hand gestures for people who are listening, which I realize is useless. Um, <laughs> but for people with a dual diagnosis, it looks a bit more spiky, like we just yeah. described. There might be really clear speech but very little functional communication or language, or they might have really good fine motor skills sometimes, but then very little mm-hmm. ability to apply those to a written task, for example. Yeah. yeah. And I think this kind of brings another area this leads us into perfectly is oftentimes we'll see our kids with Down syndrome have a regression in their skills. And then that's where our spidey senses also go up being like, okay, you know, so can you talk a little bit about this, Noemi, in terms of in your practice, how do you look for regression? What does regression look like? And how is that an indicator that there could be an ASD diagnosis on the horizon? Yes. Regression is actually one of the things that I was going to mention. I want to clarify that we are not talking about Down syndrome regression, which is a condition that we're Mm -hmm. seeing in the adolescent years where, uh, and it's rare and kids, um, lose their, a whole bunch of their skills in, in the teenage years. That is not what we're talking about right now. What we're talking about in the, it's in the two to three to four year range and, and parents are reporting loss of previously acquired skills. Um, I see it. I don't have the percentage of how often it happens in my practice. I do know that there was there were a couple of studies done specifically in people with DSASD looking at the uh, prevalence of regression and it was similar um, to that of the general popul- of the general population about a third of patients uh, um, Dr. Capone found um, he's at Hopkins uh, and then um, Castillo et al uh, suggested found in their study that it tends to happen a little bit later than um, kids in the general population um, and I and I see I I see regression and I see plateau. And I see regression, so some kids were uh, saying several words, maybe they were labeling them, maybe they were repeating them, and then they stop. Uh, That's the very common type of regression that I see. I don't necessarily see as much regression in functional skills, like someone who was Mm -hmm. toilet trained and then suddenly is no longer toilet trained. I have some kids that ebb and flow in their ability to use the potty, but the main re- type of regression I see is is in the lang- in the area of language. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I see a lot of plateauing. So a kid who was cooing, then babbling, then stringing babbles together and maybe sounding a little jargony and then reportedly saying specific words. And then that's where we have been for like two years with no building of, of language. And that plateau also um, mm-hmm. makes me want to look further into what might be going on. Mm-hmm. I want to yeah. say something, and that is I want to, because parents are listening and educators are listening. And so we look at language and we know that language can be more significantly impacted. And what I have seen is that when autism is recognized and autism specific supports are put in place, then there is progression in language. It's 
when when the right motivators are put in place and the right system mm-hmm. of uh, rewards for using one's words and communication um, is put in place, then we start seeing progress, which is the point of screening for recognizing, evaluating autism is that parents, you couldn't be trying any harder. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just that we need something different and something Mm -hmm. different comes as we recognize what else is really going on. Educators, it's not just Down syndrome sometimes. If you're seeing that someone is working really hard and you're putting the right resources in place and somehow they're stuck or there's something different about how they're communicating with you, there may be something different. Total communication is key for kids with a dual diagnosis and they need the the pictures to point to and the signs to communicate and of course the words we never stop speaking and singing and reading to our kids but um, I just want to clarify that we're talking about how kids may present but this is not a like a lifetime destiny right right? not the end of the story at all yeah yeah Mm-hmm. And even like when you were mentioning total communication, in my experience, and I'm not an SLP, but I have students with a dual diagnosis where on a day to day it changes. So some days they're more able to communicate using pictures and then they have a rough night's sleep. The next week he comes in, it is now, you know, th- th- he's ready to go with an iPad. So it, we have to give them all the tools and then help them use them as they need to on any particular day that they're coming to see you, right? So it can't always be just one thing and then we just work with that. It has to have a system. Um, Can I say a couple more things? Because I want to make, these are important and I want to make sure that I get them out. I know I'm manipulating the whole time. No, no, that's okay. (laughs) We have have topics too, so you probably will already cover them. So you go ahead first, yeah. One thing that I think can fool us is the social piece. So people with autism in the general population are often recognized because they're less social, right? And they may prefer to play alone or they may really struggle to interact with other kids. They may give poor eye contact. Maybe they're not reciprocally smiling. And many of my kids with Down syndrome and autism, when I walk in the room, will look straight at me and they'll give me this big, adorable smile. They may even hug me. There may be a brief social moment there. And then when there's an additional diagnosis of autism, I've got to pull up my sleeves and really work to sustain the interaction and the attention. The eye contact is intermittent. It's present, but it's intermittent. They may look at me in the eyes and then look away, or the eye contact is, is kind of off to the side, or maybe they're looking at my mouth a lot more than they're looking at my eyes. Um, this, the, the, the social interaction takes work. And if I stop, then the kid stops and, and moves away. Mm-hmm. It, when I'm playing with a kid with Down syndrome who does not have autism and I'm doing something ridiculous and then I suddenly stop, you best believe that they're going to like make me continue, right? Uh-huh. They whether with their Exactly. Whether with their gestures or their voice, but they're going to try to bring me back into that social interaction in a way that I see missing in my kids with a dual diagnosis. And I'm trying to highlight that because that's often when I read the school evaluations and I and I read things like 
so and so is super social they they look at me in the eye when i walked into the exam room they greeted me with a smile and they looked at me in the eye and and that's kind of the the conclusion then is then they don't have autism and i think that we just have to recognize that our kids with down syndrome and autism are a little bit more social than our kids with autism in the general population and we can't stop there. We do really need to do the formal testing and evaluation to create those social presses that are a part of the ADOS and the other um, autism testing that kind of bring out that difficulty in sustaining the social interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, perfect, you were reading my mind as I as you were talking. So diagnostic overshadowing, that it's, it's a thing. So you kind of hit on it a little bit, how certain things that, that are very similar between a person with Down syndrome and a person with DSASD. And this is a conversation that we have multiple times with families, with funding agencies that our students sometimes will get a diagnosis much later in life. Can you just speak a little bit about a maybe perhaps define diagnostic overshadowing for our listeners? Because I know you'll do a much better job than I. Um, and then just talk about how um, how that plays into recognizing ASD in individuals with Down syndrome. Yeah. So diagnostic overshadowing means that, that because someone has a known existing diagnosis, we tend to attribute some of the things that we are seeing to the diagnosis we know about. Um, And that overshadows uh, uh, potential concerns for an additional diagnosis. Example, because I know that someone has Down syndrome, and I know that Down syndrome causes communication delays. When I see a communication delay, I say, ah, it's because they have Down syndrome. And I don't necessarily think, could there be something else? Versus if I see a a kid who does not have Down syndrome or some other known syndrome that causes developmental delay, and I see someone with a language delay immediately in in what I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm ruling out autism in my head, right? And I think that that is what I strongly believe in is that because autism is common in people with Down syndrome, 10 to 16 percent is what I actually believe is the true prevalence of autism in people with Down syndrome. Some studies suggest lower, some higher, but I think that's a fair estimate because it's common then anytime we are assessing a child with Down syndrome, we should be asking ourselves, could this kid be autistic? Mm -hmm. And then we should be convincing ourselves that this kid is not autistic, right? As opposed to having it as an afterthought and getting caught in the diagnostic overshadowing, we should be having that at the forefront of our brains. And we kind of do that already in people with Down syndrome with with something else. Because leukemia is more common in people with Down syndrome, what is it, about 10%? um, Then anytime anybody has a nosebleed or a bruise, what do we do? We go and we send them to get a CBC uh, blood count to make sure that it's not leukemia, right? So Mm -hmm. we have that kind of attitude already in Down syndrome for other serious conditions. I think that we should have that similar attitude to autism because it is a a little bit more difficult to to evaluate. Um, 
Another example of diagnostic overshadowing is, is behavioral difficulties. So um, many of my kids with Down syndrome have strong ideas about how things should go in the world. And, and the same persistence that gets these young men and women to walk in spite of hypotonia and talk in spite of dysarthria and apraxia also gets them to have quite the attitude when something doesn't go their way, right? And we call them behavior problems and behavior difficulties. I try to reframe them as they're just trying to establish control in a world where they have Almost they don't nine. have much control. Yeah, and mm-hmm. they have a desire for independence. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, mm-hmm. so when someone has tantrums and behavioral difficulties, we say, ah, it's Down syndrome. But then some kids on the spectrum have big meltdowns that may be informed by sensory difficulties. We didn't quite talk about that, but I see a lot of my patients with autism having a lot of sensory needs and feeling overwhelmed by crowds, loud noises, bright lights, certain textures, certain textures of food, of clothes. And so many parents of kids on the spectrum with Down syndrome have a real tough time because their kid may be reacting really strongly to things that are are happening around them and have a really hard time coping and they're having big meltdowns. And then they go to their doctor because they're really struggling and they can't leave the house and they can't go to their family reunions or they can't go to church. And and the doctor's like, yeah, they have Down syndrome, you know, Mm. that's it diagnostic overshadowing, right? Because if we had a kid in the general population who presented to me as a doctor with big behavioral tantrums and meltdowns, what I would be trying to rule out is autism, especially if there were other things going on. Mm -hmm. So that's diagnostic overshadowing is that we're blaming everything on Down syndrome and we're not thinking about additional diagnoses. And I think that one of the cures for it, because this is something that's common enough, is to change our mindset to we need to rule this out in every child. Instead of ruling it in. Or rule it. Yeah, rule it out or rule it in. Yeah. I think that's an excellent rule of thumb for really anybody who works with people with Down syndrome is assume that they do have it and then prove to yourself that they don't, you know, start with yes and work towards no instead of the other way around. And then we will probably be much more effective in catching some of these things earlier. And I think, yeah, and the comparison to the medical issues that we constantly keep working to rule out like that that is the stance that we should take with with autism as well so i think that's a really great comparison yeah um, and, and it's, you know, it's not always one last thing it's not always autism mm-hmm. it's not always yeah. autism i had a yeah. kid come in to see me last month and the parents were like doctor we're here because we need an autism diagnosis we know that our kid is autistic because of this this and that and many people in the community have told me that my kid is autistic and we're just here so you can tell us that they do so that we can get the right support. Mm-hmm. And so when I when I hear that, I'm like, okay, you know, it's on. But then I spent two hours with this kid who was having a really hard time feeling regulated in the world, but was using communication beautifully, had really good shared attention and was tremendously impacted by sensory difficulties. And so what I told the parent is, you know, 
I'm not sure that this is autism. This may be a significant sensory integration disorder that's impacting your child's ability to pay attention and focus and listen. And so, and I'm gonna recommend a full diagnostic evaluation because I'm not, you know, all knowing, but but this may not actually be autism, right? And and so just recognizing that we're talking about autism, but there are other things that can look like it. And I don't wanna suggest that every behavioral difficulties or communication difficulty is always autism. Mm-hmm. You bring me to a really great other side thing, which is ADHD. And the, there's a real tangle between mm-hmm. Down syndrome, autism, and ADHD, and a dual diagnosis of Down syndrome and ADHD looks a lot like a dual diagnosis of Down syndrome and autism. You also see the fleeting attention. You will also see further delays in language because someone can't sit with you long enough to learn language. So there's some definite overlap there, but there are also some differences. Do you want to walk us through briefly what those differences are that you are looking out for? Sure. Um, so I agree with you, Marla. The and- <laughs> And it's a tangle because uh, in at least uh, one study, it appears that ADHD is more common in people with DSASD than in Mm -hmm. those with Down syndrome only. Mm -hmm. Now, is it, and ADHD is more common in people with autism in the general population. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it is difficult. What I'm looking for is... um, the 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 desire to communicate very much so i have some kids with adhd who are all over the place but they're taking me into their ride of all over the placeness they are tearing the exam room up but they're showing me the the sink and they are uh, taking the paper and they're bringing it to me to show it to me Mm -hmm. right before moving on to the next thing um and uh, uh, so I'm, I'm, what I'm looking for the most is the, is the social relatedness. Uh, and I, I typically see um, better um, language receptive and expressive. Um, More attempts to. Yeah. Yeah. It's that I want to talk to you. I want you in with me. And you're right. Sometimes it's really difficult. So what I would say is some kids, walk into my clinic and I tell the parent, I'm pretty sure your kid is uh, has autism as well. We need to pursue a comprehensive diagnostic evaluation with a, psycho- a full psychological evaluation and uh, a full language evaluation. We need the gold standard here. Um, I'm happy to give you uh, a DSM diagnosis for now so we can begin accessing services, but let's refer for a comprehensive diagnostic evaluation. Those are the kids that I'm, I'm sure about. Other kids, I'm really confused about. And I Me say, <laughs> I see A, B, and Z. When I see A, B, and Z, I think about autism. But the other things that can look like this are ADHD, sensory processing difficulties, severe anxiety. Mm-hmm. I would like to get a full diagnostic evaluation to help tease apart what may be going on. Mm-hmm. Those kids where I'm not so sure, I try to push the, ev- the evaluation to be as soon as possible, which in most places is you know many months from now, mm-hmm. as opposed to someone where I'm fairly confident that 
it's autism and then I'm still going to want them to get the best care and the full evaluation, but I'm not going to hesitate to um, give a diagnosis on paper and uh, um and get started. Basically, it's, it's a very it's a very different conversation with with mm-hmm. parents. Um, and then I live in California and I work in California. And in California, if someone has uh, Medi-Cal, they can access uh, behavioral treatment regardless of an autism diagnosis. Um, and uh, and so, wow. regardless, I I offer yeah. Regardless, I offer uh, that kind of support uh, mm-hmm. to families, wow. as well as emphasizing total communication and uh, uh, sensory work and a referral to occupational therapy um, so that, you know. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. One other thing I think I want to point out before we move on is here in clinic, we talk about if you have a dual diagnosis, the likelihood that you can add three more diagnoses to that is very high you can make a case for ADHD often. You can often make a case for OCD and you can often make a case for anxiety as well. And sometimes depression too. So sometimes there's DSASD plus, plus, and plus. And the only reason, well, I think there's a few reasons that families might look for that. And one is to understand their child better Mm -hmm. and access more supports for them. And a second one is to help schools understand schools like things on paper and to help schools understand like why the kid is not being bad, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, like Mm -hmm. they need more support. And here's this laundry list of diagnoses to argue for the fact that they need additional help in school. So sometimes Mm -hmm. you don't stop looking after you have a dual diagnosis. Absolutely. And and I think that we we work within a model where supports are offered based on diagnoses, these descriptors, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as opposed to the area of need. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. So what I might what I might tell a family is what I see in your kid is that they seem to really struggle with their attention and their ability to regulate their impulses. This could be called ADHD. It could be related to other things going on. So here are some things that I think could be helpful. What would you like to try first? And then, and then we go from there. Mm -hmm. And then I say, I think that it would be really helpful for this issue to be addressed in the setting of school or for it to be recognized so you can get this additional support at home. Mm-hmm. So because it meets diagnostic criteria for ADHD, I'm going to provide this diagnosis. You and I understand that there may be more of a sensory component to it that is impacting mm-hmm. attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because sensory issues are less well recognized uh, um, under the insurance umbrella, uh, we're, we're going to highlight the ADHD piece while also yeah. working on the sensory piece. I don't lie. Yeah. I don't lie to anybody. Um, but, but just recognizing that ultimately diagnoses are, are have you checked enough boxes to, to meet criteria yeah. for something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And in our students, it's often, yes, you have You've checked yes. enough boxes to add a label or a descriptor to it, but that descriptor gets you access to things. Yes, often. which is how we sometimes help families mm-hmm. uh, get reconciled. Like, I mean, I had a conversation with uh, with a parent the other day that yes, 
receiving an additional diagnosis on top of already trying to understand Down syndrome is very difficult for families. But then you're kind of looking at what else comes with that diagnosis. So we do get more support to get more access. So if you're changing your lens a little bit, then sometimes it's a bit easier to accept another diagnosis because you're just getting some more support for your child. But or, or and then for some, yeah. I agree. And I, what I tell parents is, this doesn't change who your kid is. You're bringing exactly. home the exact same kid that you brought exactly. into the clinic. Exactly. It just helps us describe what is happening. And again, yeah, it is. You've been p- parents are working so hard, and they're really trying to give the absolute best to their kid. And if we're not naming the other things that are going on, then you're kind of sp- spinning your wheels in mud. Yeah, because exactly. you're not calling out this other thing that is happening so it doesn't change your kid you're taking home the exact same kid we're just naming this other thing that you've been dealing with so that we can give it a name and then address it Mm -hmm. and that's a really nice way of putting it I think we do need to acknowledge though that there is a grief process for additional diagnoses and often the way that families found out they were having a baby with Down syndrome can was traumatic. And so it puts them right back in that place of trauma and mm-hmm. vulnerability to hear mm-hmm. that, oh, wait, that wasn't all. There's more to the picture than you thought originally. Um, but taking the perspective of this is going to allow you to help your child is healthy. And it's not going to change your child. Well, yeah. it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Noemi, so you've done such a wonderful job of trying to explain to our listeners of how ASD can present in in kids with Down syndrome. There's one little area that I quickly wanted to touch on as well. So we've talked about regression, communication, sensory, and behavior. What about the cognitive impairment? So we know that our individuals with Down syndrome have an inherent cognitive disability. Do we see it changing, increasing? if there's an additional diagnosis of autism as well? So um, what we see in the studies is that kids with DSASD tend to test lower on IQ tests. Um, I also want to recognize that these tests were not created for someone with Down syndrome or someone with Down syndrome and autism. So to me, it's a chicken or the egg thing. Are you testing Mm -hmm. lower because the test isn't made for you? Or are you testing lower because cognitively you're struggling a little bit more? I definitely think that as far as how the additional diagnosis impacts the child, um, it does have an impact on on one's learning, Mm -hmm. uh, one's academic learning, as well as someone's learning of functional skills, uh, toilet training, independence with activities of daily living, like bathing, hygiene, toothbrushing, eating independently. Um, so I, I think that cognitive testing is um, necessary in the world that we live in, but I also think that it's often a poor representation of how smart our kids are. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
I have a little bit of an allergic reaction to to them. Uh, instead, the way I because I also see kids with Down syndrome and autism who are doing very well and learn more quickly and are bilingual and still remember that I played the guitar with them five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and are reading and are doing math, right? So uh, I, I think that the way I prefer to think about it, of course, I'm on my soapbox here, is I think that when there's an additional difference in how we're learning and processing the world, um, it's going to make it harder to learn in the traditional school setting if it's not appropriately accommodated and modified. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that may show up as more significant cognitive impairment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And when appropriately supported and accommodated, uh, many people with Down syndrome and autism uh, will do very well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Yeah. So kind of moving a little bit forward into our into our episodes, we need to tread very carefully around the area of ASD treatment. So to be yeah. clear, we're not advocating for curing or taking away ASD. Instead, we want to focus on the quality of life of the student and their family. And in our clinic, we see a number of students who can be described as, you know, highly or regularly distressed. Um, In your research, you've identified a common feeling of isolation among families with a dual diagnosis, as well as feeling underserved in their schools, communities, safety concerns, and a continued need for assistance. Um, and activities of daily living, kind of how you mentioned earlier. So this is a much more explicit way to outline the distress that we observe in our families. Can we talk about available treatments or just like areas um, and and like what areas that these treatments would support? Yes. And I agree with you. Um, The... The autistic community is vocal about how specific treatments, I'll name it, how ABA has negatively impacted them. And I think that this is something that we all need to be very respectful of because I've never had ABA. So how would I know um, how it might impact me? I, so I, I do truly believe in nothing about us without us. And, and I, I, I hear and listen to the autistic community and, and it has actually made me think quite hard about uh, whether to recommend ABA in, in many patients who don't need it. Right now, what, when I'm thinking about my kids with Down syndrome, uh, who are really struggling with um, progressing in certain areas, especially functional areas or communication areas, um, and it seems like there's a lack of motivation uh, that is underlying, like intrinsic motivation mm-hmm. to to engage in some of these activities and learning. Um, then I do think that uh, a treatment and 
therapeutic approach that is based around understanding what motivates the child and consistently rewarding the desired behavior with that motivating consequence um, works. And um, so for someone who is in diapers when they're in elementary school or middle school and they're having rashes because of the diapers and uh, they require an adult to help change them, which in itself has its own risks because then it's people all up in your business and learn compliance and lack of privacy that are part of what predispose people with disabilities to abuse. <laughs> then it becomes my priority to think about how to support that person in becoming successfully toilet trained. And I may think about um, learning on a schedule, which I know works in many people on the spectrum. And then I also think about uh, strategies to really motivate the sitting and the uh, evacuating on the toilet um, so that we one can reach that independence in that functional area and functional skill, which will lead to a really big quality of life improvement for the person and for the family unit. I also would like to say that um, not all therapy is created equal. So old school ABA was very rigid and had a lot of negative reinforcement as well as uh, very rigid positive reinforcement mm -hmm. that I can see how it could be abusive dehumanizing. Yeah. and dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What I have seen in modern behavior therapy is, is natural consequences being used and social rewards, natural yeah. consequences, an idea of natural consequences. I throw something and the thing doesn't get brought back to me and it disappears yeah. and that's a natural consequence. So then I slowly learn not to throw. Um, and, and social rewards is a high fives, a verbal praise, mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, working towards a few minutes of something that's highly uh, yeah. desirable. Going on that swing you love, that kind of thing. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I actually talked to parents about uh, looking out for uh, uh, kind, gentle approaches to behavior therapy and red flags for when behavior therapy is not being implemented appropriately. Um, and then I also think that goal, one of the concerns from the autistic community is uh, um, don't make me mask. Don't make right. me be, don't, I don't want to I'm I'm happy to be autistic and 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 this and the stimming serves a purpose and the and eye contact is painful don't so don't make me do this mm -hmm. and I agree and I was just in an IEP yesterday where making eye contact was one of the suggested IEP goals for a kid on the spectrum and I was like uh-uh this needs to come out yeah. If the kid is not making eye contact, it's not impacting whether they can do this math problem. And yeah. if they're not making eye contact, it may be painful. Let's rephrase this goal so that it has a meaningful impact on, mm -hmm. on my patient. Mm -hmm. So I also talk about goals. And when I'm talking to families who are receiving ABA therapy, 
then I, I review what goals uh, have been set and I make sure that they're meaningful goals. I get real annoyed when one of the goals that someone's been working on for a long time is tying shoelaces when the kid is otherwise not eating by themselves because oh, their yeah. shoes with Velcro. So let's make goals yeah. that actually make a difference in someone's meaningful. life. And yeah. 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 And then another criticism of ABA is that it encourages learned compliance. And I think that we're a little behind the eight ball with this in our kids with developmental differences at baseline, with, with cognitive impairment at baseline, because we are constantly teaching learned compliance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, we need to think about the goals and we need to think about whether the goals are promoting safety. Are we, are we learning? And, and also, are we creating opportunities to teach the opposite, to teach consent? Mm-hmm. So it is always my practice to ask for, to explain, for example, the exam of the private areas before I check any of my patients. Mm-hmm. And if they tell me no, I don't check it. And if it's something I have to do, I don't ask for permission because and instead I explain why I have to do it and I create opportunities for consent throughout my exam Mm -hmm. may Mm -hmm. I check your ears no okay then I'm not checking your ears and I make sure that what I'm asking a yes or no question about is something I can allow a no Mm -hmm. for and I teach parents that it's important to create opportunities for not consenting throughout the day and then honoring those knows when they happen and to not set up questions as yes or no questions if you need a yes from the kid mm-hmm. and instead offer choices within that thing that needs to happen the parameters that you can allow absolutely yeah. so and you know, all that big real, answer, sorry all that big answer is just to say sorry all that big answer is just to say that behavioral treatment has a big role in, in, in supporting many kids with Down syndrome and autism, not all. Um, yeah. And, and, and I, I just, if. And if not all ABA the, is created the same, right. As you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, you brought up a really interesting point, which is when our students are in elementary school, the teaching of compliance is hot and heavy. It is like, do what I say because you have to, because I want you to, because you're in school now, because this is how it goes. Within a certain amount of time, certain times of day, like it's just the oddest measurable goal I've ever read is on compliance. Um, And yet then when someone's leaving high school, we expect them to be independent. Mm -hmm. How is that? How does that happen then? If you want them to listen to you and do what you say all day long, when are they going to learn to be independent. And I think there's a real argument for agency and options. So like in my room, people can say, no, we don't have to do, you know, whatever activities I thought were going to be fun today, your choice. Like, and if you, you know, you always love the swing, but today you don't want the swing. Fine. You don't, we don't need to swing. Like that's okay. Um, And I think there's real value in that because you're, thinking long-term, you're teaching independence, skills, and agency. And our students often have very, very little agency. Um, so any opportunity is, is valuable. That was my soapbox. I'm done now. <laughs> very good. <laughs> I want to continue answering Hina's question because sure. it's not it's not all about behavior treatment. No. I just went there yeah. because, because that was part of the initial question. Um, supporting communication 
is absolutely key. Mm-hmm. So that means uh, uh, an assessment for augmentative and alternative communication um, through the district, through insurance, through whatever means possible, mm-hmm. and really taking up any available form of communication that can assist a child in expressing themselves and their needs. And so that, uh, because that is typically one of the functions of undesirable behavior is that Mm -hmm. I can't tell you what I need, what's not right. And so I am doing an interpretive dance of it (laughs) through my behavior. (laughs) Let me show you my Um, distress around this. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I also really find it important to support the sensory needs of the child. And so a good occupational therapy assessment that includes an assessment of someone's sensory profile and needs, and then uh, intervention through sensory diets, uh, which are not something we eat, but rather little bits throughout the day of sensory support that we can access to regulate ourselves and feed that need for sensory support. Um, is very important. And then accommodations and services through the school, um, mm-hmm. super important. Um, and then I think it's so important to remember that visual is king when people have Down syndrome. Visual is emperor of the world when someone has Down syndrome and autism. Yeah. And so yeah. to really support the child with visual schedules, uh, visual task analysis, Uh, so that we can create predictability within the day and really create opportunities for errorless learning and and feeling grounded in what to expect next, Mm -hmm. including that there is reward coming, that there is something fun coming after this activity that I'm not as motivated to participate in. Mm -hmm. Within the school setting, uh, there's an approach called TEACH that... uh, Uh, creates an environment that's sensory friendly and supports attention and, uh, you know, the task being uh, self-contained if someone needs that to be the case so that, you know, we are starting this activity and ending this activity and maybe it comes from a box and we take it out and we do the activity and then we put it back in the box and it's done. Um, Lots of visuals, uh, Mm -hmm. timers so that we know that this isn't going to last forever. Um, Social stories are another thing that I love in general, and it comes from the autistic community and it can be applied uh, well Mm -hmm. to um, uh, individuals with Down syndrome. A social story is a story where the child is the main character and it kind of spells out what is expected, including how one is expected to behave in specific situations Mm -hmm. um, so that a child can be really successful when they encounter that situation and uh, um, really know what to expect. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to put a note on that one, that social yeah. stories, if people are curious about creating them, are positively worded so that we are t- explaining to the individual what to do instead of what not to do. We don't want to see social stories that are like, don't do this, don't hit, don't do this, don't walk like that, blah, 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 blah. Explain instead what would the best case scenario look like? You know, that's how you word it because that's how you explain to the person what you want them to do (laughs) exactly exactly Mm -hmm. um and i think that for any one of these supports it's important to set goals so 
Where are we? What are we trying to address? This is what the therapy that we're going to put in place to address this. And then let's check in and see if this particular thing is better as a result of the therapy. I think that having clear goals is going to make it very clear whether something is working and it's worth our time or not necessarily working and we need to move on to something else. And that's particularly important when we think about medication. There is no medicine that treats core symptoms of autism. And as many autistics would say, that's not the goal anyway. Um, Mm -hmm. And because those with DSASD may have more impulsivity, hyperactivity, anxiety, uh, sleep difficulties. Mm -hmm. There are medicines that can address some of these symptoms. Symptoms, yeah. And so if I am anxious and I start a medicine for anxiety, this may improve impulsivity but it may not, but I'm going to be looking for improvement in anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I try to be very clear about this medicine is for this. If I'm giving you something to help you sleep, it may improve your ability to pay attention during the day, but what we're going to measure is whether you're sleeping more. We're not going to judge the success of this medicine on whether other things are better or not. You know, I think it's very important to have clear goals for what we're measuring because otherwise it's going to be hard for me as a doctor to know if the dose is right, if the medicine is right. Um, and, and it's going to be hard for a parent to, uh, stick with a treatment, a medicine, if, if we're not really sure what we're trying to support. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, great. Well, that was my next question. So you covered it already. That's perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was going to ask you about medications and when do you consider them? So, um, uh, yeah, and you're absolutely right. I think it's really important to think about what the medication is treating and what the purpose of it is. It's not necessarily to help with the autism, but it is some of those other things that are also co-occurring with a DSASD diagnosis, which is anxiety, sleep apnea, and all those other things. So, yeah. And and insomnia more than sleep apnea, I would say. I think that's... For medication, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you're right. If someone has sleep apnea and they're not having refreshing sleep, they should see their pulmonologist or ear, ear nose, and throat doctor and get the sleep apnea yeah. addressed because... Mm-hmm then I'm going to have a much harder time feeling good during the day if I didn't have a good night's sleep. That was the lesson I learned in the past 10 months, having a baby. Um, (laughs) And I want to say that I don't give medicine to every child I see, whether Mm -hmm. or not they have autism. Uh, I think about it as, okay, so you're having a tough time with fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. What can we do to support your environment? What supports can we put in place, uh, uh, such as therapy, such as uh, changing a little bit of your school supports, improving communication? And then we've done these things. Is it enough? Is it impacting you functionally? Like, are you really, really having a hard time and struggling? Should we consider medication? And I'm more or less... um, emphatic about the need for medicine, depending on how much someone's life is being impacted by those symptoms. 
I have a kid, for example, that I follow who um, was being put in much more restrictive classroom environments because he was taking off his clothes and stripping naked. Right. Mm -hmm. And I want to put behavioral supports in place and I want to put all of this other cool stuff in place. And I really don't want him in a classroom where he does not belong because of this impulsive behavior. So I was a little bit quicker at offering the option of medicine for this kid so that he wouldn't be pegged into a much more restrictive environment. The medicine really helped. Meanwhile, the other things are being put in place. It might not be that the medicine is going to be in this kid's toolbox for forever it might be it really helped and um, it's allowing the child to show off how smart he is and how Mm -hmm. capable he is and the Mm -hmm. teachers are seeing his abilities as opposed to his stripping naked Mm um versus someone who's you know just a little bit inattentive but they're doing pretty well and it just takes a little bit more one-on-one attention and support to make them uh, succeed. I still tell families that medication is in the arsenal of things that we can use, uh, but I'm not as emphatic about its need mm-hmm. if it's not yeah. impacting one's life uh, as yeah. much. I think, that's an important I think that's, point. Yeah. yeah, it's so important. And I think having a dual diagnosis does not preclude your access to medication. So painting a picture, if your child has not slept in 70 hours and therefore the parents haven't slept in 70 hours, any other child without a dual diagnosis would get medication and treatment and they would figure that out. So Mm -hmm. because you have a dual diagnosis on board, doesn't mean that you don't get to go through that same process and get some support for those crisis situations that do arise and families shouldn't feel like they can't ask for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so you are in the DSASD uh, working group for the DSMIG, which is the Down syndrome medical interest group in the States. Um, can you talk a little bit about why that group was developed and what you, what your goals are? What are you guys working on? Yes. Um, So um, Dr. Brian Beldman created the work group a few years ago because, as we just talked about for the past hour and a half, um, uh, DSASD, patients with DSASD are an underserved population. And uh, we were all encountering patients with DSASD in our practice, and we were all frustrated with... um, the lack of evidence uh, around the dual diagnosis, uh, including how to best support it. Um, We just wanted to put our heads together um, to uh, think about how to improve our current situation. And uh, we started with uh, monthly calls, just kind of thinking about what would be helpful. And in the current state, we actually have different working groups We have an education and outreach group um, that has been working to develop landing pages where um, lots of information about DSASD can be housed so that a family who has questions can actually land in the right place and Mm -hmm. read high quality information about the dual diagnosis and have uh, a charted course for next steps. Um, There is, and we're trying to collaborate with other uh, organizations. And it's actually led to 
the joining of forces among uh, groups throughout the country that were doing work around DSASD and didn't know about the other's work. There's a group of us that's uh, focused on research in different ways. So one group is focused on reviewing existing literature in a very systematic way uh, to be able to make recommendations about uh, best assessments uh, for uh, to use when someone has a dual diagnosis or a suspected dual diagnosis. And then another group is... Uh, looking at existing data sets from large Down syndrome centers uh, to try and better understand uh, from existing data that's already been collected, a little bit more about whether some medical conditions are more commonly associated with uh, autism in people with Down syndrome mm -hmm. or, specific, uh, or better understand uh, um, the profiles, because what I shared with you is from clinical experience and some survey data, but we're trying to kind of um, document that in the scientific literature as well. Mm -hmm. And then the big hope and project is to be able to look at this prospectively. So gathering data going forward, mm -hmm. uh, which is the best type, the, the most rigorous type of research. And, uh, um, and I think that that's very much what we need. Um, I'm also very hopeful that there will be more research in the area of interventions. Uh, this is something that um, uh, is discussed often in the autism community as well. And so it's been it's been a very cool ride to collaborate mm -hmm. with the providers from around the country and the world um, and uh, working on expanding our existing knowledge on the dual diagnosis as well as increasing awareness mm -hmm. and we're um, very eager to collaborate with anybody who may be interested uh, um, we've touched on the educational world quite a bit and i need to say this so that it's very well known what i believe which is i know that educators are working so hard and dedicating their lives to supporting their students with down syndrome and uh, um, so when autism is not recognized, I'm not here to criticize. I'm here to recognize that more education is needed. Mm -hmm. um, and so we are very eager to collaborate with uh, people from the educational world. Um, and we would love for uh, more educators to join DSMIG and, uh, and collaborate with us on this DSASD work group. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's been, so it's been exciting. There's so much potential there too, because once the understanding is there, people's jobs ideally get easier instead yes. of harder, right? You get, you understand the tools that you need to have and the ones that you need to try. And then the teacher or educator's life should become easier. And certainly the student's life should become easier because everything is supported. And there's less of these sort of fractures in the daily routine where things haven't gone to plan. I mean, that's the sort of end goal of it, right? Is that everybody has their needs met. Same page. Right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Are there any resources that you'd like to share at this point for either medical practitioners or for parents and educators? Anything that really comes to mind? I've written down a few of what you've said for teach and social stories, work systems and the like, and we'll put links to all of this on our, on our episode page. So, um, I fashion myself website designer in my free time, oh, not, nice. not a very good one. So uh, on our clinic's website, 
www.charliesclinic.org www.charliesclinic.org. We have a whole section on development and one of the subsections is a page on autism. And that is where I have been hoarding um, resources. And uh, until there are more formal um, resources available, um, that would be uh, one uh, place where I could uh, recommend parents go. It has links to um, the Down Syndrome Autism Connection, which is an Mm -hmm. online support organization. Um, A lot of families do, did in our surveys, did mention that they drew a lot of benefit from feeling like a part of a a community and uh, Mm -hmm. sometimes didn't feel like they fit quite into the Down syndrome community, uh, but felt much more at home in the DSASD community. Um, so I strongly recommend that. Uh, shout out locally to the Down syndrome uh, connection of the Bay Area. They are amazing and they actually have a Down syndrome autism um, support um, group as well as resources on their page. Um, I really, really like... Um, Uh, There's a couple of books that I really, really like, um, and I want to say their names correctly. This is is where you might want to cut out this part where I'm uh, searching because I have a heart. So there's a couple of really good books I like. One is When Down Syndrome and Autism Intersect, A Guide to DSASD for Parents and Professionals. Um, And then another book um, is A New Course, A Mother's Journey, Navigating Down Syndrome and Autism, uh, authored by my friend Teresa Unerstall. And uh, it's really good. And uh, I'm a fan of the whole book. And then I'm a huge fan of the pages at the end, which is basically a roadmap to navigating school and uh, the IEP and uh, other benefits that become available when once someone is diagnosed with autism. Um, so I'm a huge fan of those two books as mm-hmm. well. When DSASD intersect is such a great primer for anybody who's maybe new to working with people with Down syndrome and ASD. It is mm-hmm. a really, really good one. Yeah. We will put all of that on our on our resource page. So thank you for sharing that. What a joy to talk with you. Oh, I could have listened to you for about five more hours. <laughs> you're like a you're like a primary care physician, OT and SLP all enrolled into one. So we love it. <laughs> Thank you for for spreading our message too. Yeah. You know, uh, there's the, the, we, we are, um, there, there isn't enough of any of us. And so we all have to fashion ourselves, um, uh, many different things, right? We wear a lot of hats. We sure do. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you so much. Noemi for spending the time with us today. And I know that our families, educators, anyone listening to this podcast is really going to come away with a really good, solid understanding and of how the picture of DSASD is complex and how we can help our individuals with Down syndrome and ASD. So we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Lowdown, a Down Syndrome podcast, can be found on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe today so you never miss an episode. And let us know what you think by leaving a rating and a review.
Be sure to visit the webpage for this episode at dsrf.org slash podcast for additional resources related to the topic. You can also follow DSRF Canada on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube for updates from the Lowdown and the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation. Want to know more about Down Syndrome? Class is now in session at DSRF's online learning portal powered by Thinkific. Users have called DSRF's resource brilliant, fantastic, and absolutely first class. Now, our educational platform puts these tools right at your fingertips. Start with our free introductory course Down Syndrome 101 or dive deep into the issue that matters most to you by enrolling in subjects like mental health or relationships and sexuality for people with Down syndrome. Each course guides users through video, audio, and written resource to help you better understand and support the person in your life with Down syndrome. All courses and subscriptions include access to the DSRF Circle of Support. Through this social community, users can interact and learn from one another and engage directly with DSRF. So, what are you waiting for? Class is about to begin. And there's an empty desk just for you. Visit dsrf.org slash thinkific to sign up today. Got questions? We have answers. 321's Canada's Down Syndrome magazine brings leading-edge expertise from Canada's top Down Syndrome professionals, as well as parents and people with Down Syndrome, direct to your inbox four times per year. Brought to you by the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation and Canadian Down Syndrome Society. 321 tackles issues important to people with Down Syndrome and their families at every stage of life. From mental and physical health and development, relationships, employment, independence, and more, we will equip you to explore whatever your future hopes. 321 Magazine, information and inspiration for Canada's Down Syndrome community. Download the latest issue and subscribe for free at dsrf.org slash magazine. The Lowdown, the Down Syndrome podcast, is a production of Down Syndrome Research Foundation. Learn more at dsrf.org and join the conversation at DSRF Canada on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The Lowdown is hosted by Marla Foden and Hannah Mahmood and is produced by Glenn Hughes. The Lowdown theme music and Joe's Do was written and recorded by Rick Scott.